0: You're listening to Penny Johnston with ABC Baby Talk Podcast. What do you think happens when the smartest girl in the room decides to get pregnant? Do you expect she'll just take the obstetrician's advice on everything? What if she is a world leading health economist with a PhD from Harvard University? What if she is used to crunching the numbers on some of the world's biggest health assumptions? Will she give up coffee, sushi, and salad bars without a fight? Well, lucky for you and me, she didn't take the traditional pregnancy advice lying down.
1: People think that if they are denying themselves something that they would enjoy, that is what it means to be, like, a good parent and, like, to be loving your, your you know, developing fetus. Like, it's somehow like I'm doing this for my baby, and so if I – even if it has no benefit –
0: Dr. Emily Oster is an extraordinary economist and professor at Brown University in the US. She challenged everything. Her demand for the research behind traditional pregnancy advice resulted in a book, Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. She is very good at challenging assumptions. So this week on Baby Talk, we're going to meet Professor Emily Oster and find out what we really need to know about pregnancy advice. Emily, I'm dying to ask you, what was it like for you being pregnant?
1: So I will say, I think I had an experience that a lot of women shared, which is I had not had a lot of contact with the medical system ever. And I found myself pregnant, which I was very excited about. And, you know, I'm a person who in all of the other aspects of my life, has a, have a lot of control, and I think a lot about the decisions that I'm going to make, and I am really involved in those decisions. And, you know, I got pregnant, and then there was this experience where, like, I wasn't really expected to be involved in a lot of the decisions that I thought were very important. And I think that was the the most surprising thing for me, was was not that people weren't respectful, or that it wasn't I wasn't able to talk to my doctor, but just that there were a set of things that we were supposed to do. You do X, you do Y, you don't do Z, you don't do A. And I was like, well, okay, like, can you tell me a bit more? Like, why would I not do those? Or how do you know that's the right decision? And it was just like, oh yes, that's, that's the right decision. Like, that's the decision for you. I was like, I, I don't, how could that be? Like, you don't know anything about me. And it was like, well, that's the decision for ladies that are 30. I was like, well, I, I'm not just any lady that is 30. And I think a lot of the the book really came out of sort of those experiences and saying, okay, well, now I have to go back and figure these things out for myself. So I can go and have these conversations in a way that was more educated and where I had more control and more of an understanding of the the preferences and the things that I liked and you know what I was going to want to do with with my pregnancy.
0: Well, just to give a little bit of perspective on this, one of the things that you're involved in is is looking at very widely held population beliefs and going in hard and researching hepatitis B and HIV in Africa. So, you know, just to be told sort of don't eat soft cheese in pregnancy might have been a little bit of a red rag to a bull.
1: Yeah, I, I that was that was definitely. Part of it that I, you know, I I thought of myself as someone who spent a lot of time researching and and understanding things where maybe the conventional wisdom was different from what I learned, and so I think yes, part of it was, all of a sudden you say don't don't eat soft cheese, I think well wait a minute, in a lot of other settings, I have learned that you know the thing that people say isn't necessarily the right thing, so how do I know that this is necessarily the right thing okay
0: all right so was your obstetrician at all intimidated by you sort of coming back with this dialogue with him or her you know
1: it, her yes her I do not think uh my obstetrician was was a very big fan of me um <laughs> I don't think I was her favorite uh, although you realize you know,
0: they, they have massive power over you at that that sort of end point I would kind of want to
1: be keeping them on side. No, it's it's true, although actually the way it works, I don't know how it works in Australia. The way it works in the US is the person who actually delivers your baby is often like not the main person that you have been seeing. <laughs> sure. So actually I had never met the lady who came to deliver my baby. She like showed up 15 minutes before the baby was born and sort of like caught it and then left and sent a large bill. It was a very expensive 15 minutes.
0: <laughs> Can you give us an idea then of how you went about coming up with the information that you could use to perhaps challenge some of these preconceptions about behavior during pregnancy?
1: Yeah. So I basically use two tools, which are the same as the tools that I use in, in my job. So one is just a, a deeper understanding of the data. So actually a lot of the recommendations uh, and things about what decision you should make are based on very old data or really very bad data where people have run studies that are really, really problematic from which we should effectively learn nothing. And yet we're basing decisions on them. So the first thing I did in any of these questions was just try to figure out, okay, like what does the data really say? And then I also tried to combine that with some better understanding of the idea of weighing costs and benefits. And so I found in many of these situations, there would be like one example of one time when something bad happened to someone because they did this thing. And it's not that we don't want to take into a, that into account, but we want to think about, okay, there is some benefit to whatever this activity is. And one time something bad happened that may have been related to it We do not want to automatically tell people you cannot do this. We would like to tell them, you know, there's there's a risk for this. This thing happened one time. You want to think about how do you weigh the risks and benefits? So I think those two things, the the combination of the data and then some decision making framework that took into account, you know, both what the risks were, but also like the fact that pregnant women might like to eat a ham sandwich or have some sushi and that that is also something of value trying to sort of combine those ultimately to make decisions that worked better for me.
0: We've actually done a a couple of interviews with economists about things relating to pregnancy and birth. And in a sense, you guys are kind of almost the only people that really do get to explore data with regards to pregnancy because it's really hard to do scientific tests on pregnant ladies. (laughs) The ethics committee is never going to allow you to let 500 pregnant ladies eat a ham sandwich every day and 500 pregnant ladies not eat a ham sandwich every day and work out, you know, which one has the better baby. So it's kind of tough to do that for all scientific data.
1: Yes, I agree. So doing randomized trials, which is sort of what we think of as the gold standard for evidence, is very hard. Uh, There actually are some randomized trials around some things that happen at birth, like studies of uh, pain relief during labor, like the epidural, there's some randomized stuff. But most of the evidence that we get on this is based on comparing women who did one thing or did another thing. So in your ham sandwich example, rather than comparing women who we forced to eat a ham sandwich to those who we forced not to eat a ham sandwich, we're just looking at women who ate ham sandwiches versus those who did not eat ham sandwiches. and that is a harder comparison because you don't know like what else is different about the women who eat the ham sandwiches that might in fact be responsible for any differences that you see. So, yeah. and, and you also, the-
0: you, you're also relying on them to remember that they ate a ham sandwich or remember that they didn't eat a ham sandwich. And the question may be asked six months
1: after the baby was born. So, or five years after the baby is born, like, tell me all the things that you ate when you were pregnant. Now your kid is 10. Like some of these studies are really problematic because of these issues of, of recall bias. There's a lot of things that make this a hard thing to study. The, the, the other thing that's happening is like a lot in a lot of cases, the kinds of risk we're looking for are extremely small. So you would actually need to have not 500 women, but 500,000 women to actually have enough people to pick up if, to like see any effects in the data. And so we're running up against a limit of just like what is possible with kind of samples that we can reasonably have in a, in a study.
0: And then again, you get another bias again, because a couple of years ago, we spoke to Professor Yvonne Kelly, who had completed some research in the United Kingdom comparing the behaviour of children from women who drank one to two glasses of alcohol per week during their pregnancy as opposed to women who abstained and I think women who probably drank over what was the recommended limit. And I can remember actually asking her, like, who – who confessed to drinking during pregnancy? And she said, well, look, you don't get it. The group that we were researching, there was no medical advice not to drink alcohol during pregnancy. So there was sort of no stigma attached to drinking during pregnancy.
1: Right. I mean, this comes in the context of alcohol, this this concern of sort of like how will people interpret what you're saying is something that comes up a lot. I actually think it comes up when we think about making these policies. So with the US, I think Australia also has a very strict like abstinence during pregnancy uh, recommendation. When I've talked to people about who were kind of in the space of making these recommendations, I've talked to them about, well, what is the value of that recommendation? If the truth is that we kind of don't have any evidence suggesting that occasional drinking is bad, and they've told me, you know, look, the thing is that we don't want to say maybe it's okay to have a little because like, what if people then have a lot? And we know that having a lot is really bad. And so we don't want to risk that people will misinterpret the thing that we're saying. And so I think particularly when you're making actual public health policy, as opposed to explaining what is in the research, there is this tension about, is it a good idea to be more cautious than the the research supports because you're trying to avoid a an over response.
0: And then sometimes you do get the research that can show that there really is an effect from something. And I know there's there's been a study that's taken a look at what happens if you're delivered, say two weeks before your due date and I think the figures were sort of enough that it's really changing policy for doctors scheduling inductions and c-sections they're stepping back from going two weeks early which in the past had been considered not really ever going to affect the baby
1: yeah I mean that's been a big change in the U.S. it used to be very common if it was convenient to induce labor kind of anytime after 37 weeks was like fine And I think we've we've really pushed to like you know kind of have to be at at full term. Um, And I think there's a there's a question of like how did we learn that information? I don't think that it was something that was learned all at once. There wasn't some big study that changed how people were doing things. I think it was an accumulation over time of observations that you know hey you know these babies aren't doing as well as babies that are that are born later, and so maybe we want to rethink some of what we're doing, especially since in many of these cases, there there isn't much benefit to doing this earlier.
0: Now, I'm dying to ask you about your book, which is called Expecting Better. Tell me, I want to know
1: some of your favorite myths that you are able to debunk. So, uh, you know, personally, I would say the the coffee discussion is the one that was the most, that, that was like the hit the closest to home personally, <laughs> because it's the thing I like the best. So so you know there's there's a lot of discussion of the role of caffeine in in causing miscarriage and you know people take this in a in a pretty extreme direction like you know, absolutely no coffee ever during pregnancy and so you know when i dug into that literature there's just no evidence that limited amounts of coffee have any impacts at all there's maybe a, a little bit of evidence that if you're drinking like a lot of coffee like in eight cups a day. Maybe there's some increased risk of miscarriage, although even that is like not super compelling. So in terms of foundations, the kind of abstinence on, on caffeine, I think is really not supported. And the data, which is of good news for some pregnant ladies <laughs> yes, like myself, who really like the, the caffeine. So that was, that was probably the most personal most personally valuable one. We've started to
0: talk about wine, and is wine also a myth that you were able to debunk? And is there more evidence apart from that, yeah, the millennium cohort study? Yeah,
1: so there, yes, so so we spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time on alcohol in the book. I think it's worth saying initially that it's very clear that drinking a lot during pregnancy and or even one or two times can be quite damaging. And so I was trying to address the question similar to what this Millennium Cohort study was doing, which was just, if you're having one to two drinks a week, certainly less than one every day, is there any evidence that that's that's damaging? And there's a lot of studies of basically the same form as the Millennium Cohort study. So looking at women who live in places where the rules about alcohol consumption during pregnancy are more lax, so you worry less about the sort of stigma problem. And in basically all of those cases, you actually see this sort of similar effect that the children of women who drink in moderation tend to be, if anything, like a little bit better on cognitive and, um, <laughs> and behavioral outcomes. And I think some of that is selection. If you do a careful job, I think it, it sort of seems like it basically it's like kind of zero. It really doesn't matter either direction. So I spend a lot of time on that. There's actually some good evidence in the book uh, from Australia. So one of the pretty large study that's followed kids for a long time that was run in Australia um, that has these, these same kind of effects. So I think that's a you know reasonably consistent fact in the data.
0: One that may surprise people is that gardening is yes. not a hobby to be undertaken whilst pregnant.
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a disease called toxoplasmosis which is actually quite bad if you're pregnant. It can lead to miscarriage and congenital abnormalities. And people typically associate it with cats. So if you have a cat, there's this recommendation that you should not clean the cat litter. So that actually turns out that's probably not such a big deal, but you actually are much more likely to get this from gardening because you're digging up I guess, other kinds of animal poop or maybe cats pooped in your, other people's cats poop in your garden. That's sort of unclear. So it isn't either like a super co- common thing and it's not like there's no way to prevent it. You should wear gloves uh, when you garden. But I think that's a that's something that people found sort of I certainly found that surprising.
0: Did you tackle the, and I don't know if you have the Bay marie
1: Yeah, so I think that is because of, that is the same reason they tell you to stay away from deli meat, which is that, that when you leave stuff like warm, in like these warming trays, they can get listeria, which is this very bad Foodborne illness, which is very bad if you get it, and it's especially bad for pregnant women. But the thing is, like those, what do you call them? Bay Bay Marie smorgas- Bay Marie. Yeah.
0: smoke. Smorgas- okay. Those are
1: probably not going to give you this. I mean, it's incredibly unlikely. Like if you look at the things that have caused a lot of listeria, it is mostly in the U.S. At least, it is almost all outbreaks associated with like poorly handled ice cream or bean sprouts or frozen vegetables. So there's all this emphasis of like ham sandwiches and and warming trays. And then when you actually look at like who has listeria, it's like people who ate frozen vegetables from this fancy grocery store that, that had listeria. So there's a sort of tension there, which like you don't want to get this illness, but it is pretty hard to avoid it just by not eating warming
0: tray food I'm also wondering if you explored the cultural uh, opinion of pregnant ladies and that you know they're sort of so doing such a special job that they've got to be looked after really well and so you know we don't want to always err on the side of caution when making choices or recommendations for women who are pregnant
1: Yeah, I think that this is like a really problematic psychology (laughs) where kind of I think it it goes beyond that. I mean, I think it goes to a place where people think that if they are if they are denying themselves something that they would enjoy, that is what it means to be like a good parent and like to be loving your your, you know, developing fetus. Like it's it's somehow like I'm doing this for my baby. And so if I even if it has no benefit just the mere fact that I am not doing something that I enjoy must indicate that I, that I like my, my baby more than, you know, someone else who's doing this. And I think that, you know, I think this—at least in the U.S.—this really carries over to to parenting, the way people approach parenting as well. It's really odd. The
0: mum shaming
1: idea. The mum shaming. The mommy shaming. It starts starts at pregnancy and yeah. continues.
0: Did you tackle smoking at all as a a topic? Because I know that was a there was a massive mum shaming incident a few years ago when a quite popular celebrity was caught having a sneaky cigarette whilst pregnant.
1: Yeah, I do tackle smoking. It is pretty much the one thing that that does have quite negative consequences and we actually have good evidence on this because they run these interventions where they try to get pregnant women to quit smoking Um, and then you can see whether the babies of the moms who are like encouraged to quit smoking do better than the babies that of the moms that do not are not encouraged and the answer is like they do much better like the birth like birth weight is much bigger so like it could be up to a pound which is like obviously a lot cuz babies are not that big when they come out and so so i think that is something where although i do not think that the practice of shaming people is good In any case, there is pretty good evidence that smoking during pregnancy is not a good idea.
0: Glad that at least we can be very clear about that one. Sometimes, of course, economists find information out that they are not really particularly happy about. And we just did an interview with an economist from Melbourne called uh, Dr. Kane Polidano, who actually found out that children born via cesarean section are significantly lower in their cognitive development than their peers that are born the ordinary way. And he he's copped an awful lot of backlash because of these results. You know, obviously a lot of parents up in arms. When we spoke to him we actually found out that all three of his children were born this way. And he uh-huh. he said if anyone could crunch the numbers to try and bring it round to a result that looked better, it was gonna be him, but he just he just couldn't couldn't make it work. Yeah. Is there was there anything that you really couldn't bring around to your way of thinking about pregnancy?
1: There were many things like that. So when I came around to this birthing stuff, I had some sort of particular ideas about how I thought that should go. And then, you know, it turned out that, that some of these interventions that I was like hoping to to avoid and then I thought were silly turned out to be basically a, like a good idea. There were some shots that I really didn't want. So there were like these, if you, there's, depending on your blood type, that you may have to if you if you want to have future kids there's like these really ba- really painful shots that you have to have and i had hoped that perhaps that was made up but it turns out no so there were there were a few things like that where i i kind of you sort of hope the data hope that when you push into it the data comes out one way and then it it turns out not to
0: i think that pregnancy and childbirth is like light- Nature's great leveler for all of us that think they're a bit too clever yep. for our own good. Yes,
1: yeah. At the end of the day, it's coming out. It's coming out of the same place, and you know, <laughs> there's really not that much you can do about that.
0: Did you enjoy being taken for a ride by the biology of
1: the human body? Um, you know, I I had like a good draw on the preg. Both of my pregnancies were were pretty easy. Um, but you know, the end is a little, you know, problematic. Oh, it's a bit. Yeah, it's a bit tough. <laughs> you know, there's sort of a magical thing about you've like made this person and then there's a person and and they're there. And it's kind of like the fact that that works is sort of astonishing. And yes, the fact that your body at some point is just like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting this thing out, whether you like it or not, it's coming. And it, a unique experience in the life of someone who otherwise has a lot of control
0: as an economist. And now as we know, daughter of economists, what are your kids in for when they start to get a bit older? Are you going to be crunching the numbers yeah. on whether or not they're, they're allowed to uh, get their driver's license at 16 or
1: what, you, what <laughs> I you haven't that? gotten that far yet. My oldest one is only six. So I'm actually writing a second book, which is about like early childhood and questions like sort of the same kind of thing, but questions like what about breastfeeding and vaccination? And so that has has ended up involving a bit more of my sort of talking about my kids now that they're like real kids and so I I had to promise my 6-year-old that she could read the parts that mention her and she would have like veto power if she decides that she doesn't want me to say whatever it is i've i've said about her so i'm hoping that she likes it <laughs> yeah you got I a tough one fi- i guess we'll find out
0: you got a tough audience there but well that sounds really fascinating so like you're going to take a look at say length of breastfeeding or introduction of solids yep Yes, whether, whether preschool is worth it
1: yep discipline methods there's a lot of it the, the book continues to like as I talk to more people I'm like oh yeah I should put that in so the the sort of scope of the has has been growing faster than the production of the actual book but I'm thinking it will eventually be written. And I think, you know, and I think a lot of the same kinds of frustrations with sort of not knowing kind of what does the evidence say I should do or how should I think about this problem? Like a lot of those same frustrations come up uh, in parenting the way that they do in pregnancy. I think that, you know, the difference is that, that most of this kind of early parenting stuff is not really about interacting with the medical system. It's more about just sort of thinking about what is the right thing to do for my kid and the the kind of other people that are commenting on it are mostly like other people that you know who have a lot of opinions. This is a way to, to put a little structure on how you should think about this. If you want
0: to explain really good economics, that's really just putting the figures to either support or refute what everybody's gut feeling or traditional way of doing things is. That is our job. Professor Emily Oster from Brown University. And I wonder, did you take all the advice you were given when you were pregnant and not just the advice from the obstetrician, but the sort of stuff that random strangers can come out with when you're pregnant, suddenly you're not capable of making a decision on your own. I will put links to find out more about Emily Oster and links to her book as well on the Baby Talk website. You can find us by searching Baby Talk, one word in your favorite search engine, and if you've just found us baby talk we're a podcast that's published weekly on itunes and on the abc listen app and pretty much anywhere you find your favorite podcasts we'd love it if you came over and joined us on facebook as well where you can join in the discussion contribute story ideas and catch up with the latest news from the world of parenting i'm penny johnston i will see you next time on baby talk,
1: baby talk.